Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm excited to be with you for the second installment of spiritual preparation for the high holy days tonight i want to talk about teshuva um, which is one of the key themes key messages of the high holy days but i want to talk about it maybe in a slightly different way than we often do Um, and i want tonight to be a conversation definitely not a lecture Um, we are preparing our hearts for this season together Um, and this whole month of Elul is a, uh, a chance to prepare our hearts every morning during Shachari, during morning services during this month. Um, we traditionally blow the shofar as a way of, of piercing through with that piercing sound, that piercing call of the shofar, uh, piercing through our complacency, piercing through the normal path that we um, get accustomed to treading, to um, to walking every day, whether it's literal, literal or metaphorical, um, so often we get, um, whether we're stuck in a rut or just um, comfortable on the path that we're on, the high holidays remind us every year to, um, to re-examine, are we really truly the people that we want to be? How can we become better people in the year ahead? And um, what can we do to bridge that gap? So today I'd like to talk about one notion of teshuva, um, which, well, how do we normally translate teshuva? Repentance. Repentance, exactly, exactly, thank you. Um, And repentance or atonement um, is the literal translation um, of Yom Kippur, lechaper, or, or kippur in Hebrew is the root for atonement. Um, but teshuva actually means something different. Um, it actually means the literal root. Does anybody know what the literal root um, of teshuva means? Uh, return. Thank you, Russell. Exactly. One of Russell is um, our most advanced student in our adult ulpan, which is getting kicked off this Sunday. So uh, if any of you are not signed up and would like to learn Hebrew, we have a few spots left, so just shoot me an email um, if you're interested, rabbijeff at timememphis.org, and um, we can uh, get you get you right in. But exactly, Russell, it means to turn or to return. Um, so I want to talk about a potential path to return, to turning uh, from the path that we're on and returning to maybe the path that we are meant to be on. So I'd like to share. 
this first reading. This comes from our Yom Kippur Maksor from Mishkan HaNefesh. And um, it's, it just seems logical to me that if we are going to turn um, what is at, at Hula, is it Judy Dench that said, uh, what's the best place to start at the very beginning? That was a little before my time, but I think that was Dame Judy Dench. Okay, so could somebody please read the, the first, um, uh, starting in the italics, and then I can read the, the Hebrew. Can it be made any bigger? Is it small? Well, for my eyes that yes, need the eye surgery. Let me see what I can do. I'm going to get cataract surgery, so right now it's small. <laughs> Let me stop the share, and then I'll zoom in here. Let's see. Let's see. That's obviously very, very small, right? Very small. Oh, oh now you're doing it. <laughs> so let's see what we can do. Yeah, you're doing it, Rabbi. You're doing it. All right. Let's see. Uh, one second. You're getting there. We're working on it. Okie dokie. Is that big enough for you, Wendy? Yes. Except, yeah, I'm just trying to get the whole thing in, right? Okay, perfect. <laughs> okay. You there are wonderful. Now, where do you want me to start? We uh, we marvel, please. Okay, we marvel at the abiding miracle of our existence, the primordial explosion of being and light, our origins in oneness. Through contemplating the mystery of creation, may we ascend toward the holy. Thank you. So there's a couple of things in this one introduction that we're going to come back to um, a few times tonight. But I'd like to, um, before I get your thoughts on that, read um, from the very beginning, the very beginning, according to our tradition um, from the Torah. Normally translated as in the beginning, but if you uh, really look at the Hebrew grammar, it is more as God uh, began to create the Shemaim, the heavens and the earth. Um, although the punctuation doesn't match that. And the earth was unformed and void, which is a spiritual um, a spiritual state that I think we can aspire to return to during this month of Elul, a month in which we try to step away from the, the concrete, the, the fixed patterns, that we have gotten ourselves into and try to become um, a little bit in our soul, tohu vavohu, um, shapeable, uh, unformed and void. So in addition to the, the whole world or the whole universe being unformed and void, also the choshech al hatahom, that there was darkness upon the face of the deep. This is one of my favorite lines. If you've ever come to... Um, my Jewish meditation classes, I come back to this often. We, we probably won't focus on it today. But the Ruach Elohim merachefet al hamayim. And the breath or the spirit or the wind of God, Ruach has all those meanings, um, was merachefet al hamayim, was something um, on the face, above the face of the water. This word merachefet, 
is actually only used twice in the entire Tanakh, in the entire Hebrew Bible. And um, so we don't know exactly what it means. But in, oh gosh, um, the other book is escaping me. Um, but ooh, I think Jeremiah, but I could be wrong. I think it starts with the J. I'll get back to you on that. Uh, but Merachefet is used, and in modern Hebrew means um, like the, the wings of an eagle uh, or an eagle Merachefs over the water. So um, either flopping or sorry, flapping or hovering. Um, you can imagine if you've ever seen the big bird, we were just walking at um, Shelby Farms before we got uh, before this class. And uh, there's blue herons, uh, which is one of the best parts of, of Shelby Farms. And if you see a big majestic bird like that, just hovering over the water, um, I think that that's what this verb connotes, that God was hovering, or the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Vayomer Elohim Yehior Vayihior. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So in the very first day of creation, we go from complete darkness, from complete um, chaos, tohu vavohu, from complete unformed and void, to light. So before we move on, um, I'd like to just get your thoughts quickly about why are we reading Bereshit? Why are we reading um, this, this section of Bereshit on uh, a, a class about the High Holy Days? Traditionally, wasn't the world supposed to have been created on uh, Rosh Hashanah? Beautiful, beautiful. Um, we, there's a song that we sing on Rosh Hashanah, um, Hayom Harat Olam, that today the world was conceived, um, or, or literally maybe means today the, uh, God is pregnant with the world, um, but something like that. And yes, there, there's some idea that uh, Rosh Hashanah was literally the first day of creation, um, or the first day of creation we observe as Rosh Hashanah every year. Very nice, Russell. Linda. We, we have an opportunity to create ourselves each year also, just, just like God created us originally. Very nice, very nice. There's a line in our um, morning prayers that is, Behol Yom, um, Behol Yom Tamid, Ma uh, oh gosh. It's... Uh, Say that again, Mary. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's it's from that same prayer. It's uh, I'm blanking on the exact line, but it's something like um, that in God's gracious, in God's graciousness, God recreates mechadesh, the works of creation, Masevereshit, um, every day. yom tamid, every day that God is always recreating that creation wasn't this thing in the beginning um, and maybe this is a theological reason why we don't translate this as in the beginning god created 
because God is constantly, according to Judaism, creating and recreating the world. Um, there's Kabbalistic notions that God is actually creating every moment that's happening. God is actively creating the world in that moment and keeping the world going. And um, But we as God's Rabbi? partners also have uh, the opportunity to recreate ourselves, and especially on Rosh Hashanah. Very nice. Uh, Rabbi, that idea yeah. also makes me think about tikkun olam, that if God is constantly creating, that we're helping him in that, uh, in in doing that by through tikkun olam. Beautiful, beautiful. So that when God creates the world, not only us, but all other things, that uh, we can be God's partner in repairing the brokenness in the world that we're all a part of. So that's a, a really nice segue, Wendy, um, to where I would like to go next. So let's see, just in this one page of Mopsworth, there's so much. Yes, Tom. Yeah, I'd like to point out that some cosmologists, some astrophysicists think that uh, matter is, is constantly being created now, that the uh, cosmos is continuing to expand and that matter is being created out of nothingness, even as we speak. So, um, Tom, that is well beyond my uh, high school physics class, uh, which I did okay in, but uh, that was the last physics class I took. So I'll, t I'll have to take your word for it. But I promise, actually, we are on the very next slide, we're going to get very close to that idea. So uh, very nice. But so could somebody please read uh, this next text, Oneness? And this, by the way, is uh, this the whole rest of this page is from Danny Matt, Daniel Matt, who is the probably the, the preeminent, not probably, definitely the preeminent scholar of the Zohar alive today, are the key Kabbalistic text. And, uh, and for Kabbalah, for those of you who don't know, is, is um, the foundation of Jewish mysticism. And he just, in the last couple of years, completed a complete translation of the Zohar into English, the first scholarly translation into English, and it is... Um, uh, by all accounts, excellent. Uh, I can't claim to know enough, uh, to be proficient enough in Aramaic to, to say whether or not I think it's a good translation, but from all accounts, it is uh, a real gift to, to Judaism. So um, does somebody want to read here oneness? Oneness is grounded in scientific reality. We are made of the same stuff as all of creation. Everything that is, was, or will be started off together as one infinitesimal point, the cosmic seed. Life has since branched out, but this should not blind us to its underlying unity. Thank you, Russell. Very nice. So what is this saying here? What is Danny Mack saying Tom, you said a moment ago that we energy that matter might potentially be um, whether it's in a, a stage of, of creation out of nothing or whether the universe is in a state of constant expansion. Um, we know that the universe is constantly expanding uh, because of, uh, oh, what's 
it's well, I'm trying to remember. It's like the Doppler effect uh, with, the, with the, the red the and blue, blue radiation. Yeah, yeah. Light, light is light is blue shifted. Um, the further away you go, the further the um, the the frequency of the light gets shifted. The exactly. Doppler, the Doppler effect. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Um, and so we we do know that the universe is constantly expanding, um, and yet and yet we are all, according to Judaism and and also according to physics. Uh, made of the same stuff, the same energy, um, which is vibrating um, as matter, and uh, we are all connected in the same stuff. But I love this last line, and we'll, we'll touch more on this, of course, but I love this la last line. We have branched out. Life has since branched out from this one infinitesimal point, but this should not blind us to its underlying unity. So to actually... Uh, get into this idea of unity um, more, I want to bring you a text from none other than the uh, probably the, the most famous Jewish physicist of all time. I don't, can you see that? Um, yes. Einstein and the rabbi. Has anybody read this book by Rabbi Naomi Levy? So this is a really wonderful book that I highly recommend. Um, all about um, the interconnection of um, us with the world around us. And it was inspired by uh, a reading that Rabbi Levy found. She's a rabbi in California, um, I believe conservative or reconstructionist. Um, and it's based on a text uh, that a letter that Einstein sent a, a rabbi. Um, I'm not going to tell you the whole context right now, but um, this book was based on this letter, which I want to read you a section of here. Is that too small to read? No. Uh, uh, you, it's you good. Want to read? Um, sure. Go ahead, Bess. Is that too small? Uh, no. <laughs> no. It's perfect. Okay. A human being is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and foundation for inner security. Thank you. That Beth. is amazing, Rabbi. Thank you for sharing. I'm like, oh my God, this Einstein, he, he's just amazing. Isn't he? This, this text for me was really transformational. Um, this, as the person who had probably more insight into the uh, inner workings and underpinnings of the universe than any other human being to ever live. And what he's saying is almost word for word echoing what we had in the prior slide up here in Kabbalah. Right, that we are all. Uh, can you guys hear my uh, dog scratching at the door? I think she wants to learn some Torah too. Um, we can't blame her for that. But um, 
he is echoing this notion that we are all interconnected. That, but I love the way he identifies. He says right here, we experience the world, we experience life as being separate from other beings. Right? When I look at you, um, or you look at me, we're, we're obviously now looking at a screen, uh, but I look at myself um, as being something separate from this screen, or separate from each of you, or separate from the trees and, and the, the mountains. But what he says, what Einstein, of all people, says is this is a kind of, what does he say, an optical delusion of our consciousness. That in fact, even though we appear to be separate from other things, in fact, we're all one. We're all interconnected. Rabbi, I just want to say that this is this is something that I've been into for a long time. And, you know, when I talk to people about this, sometimes I say, you know, every single thing there is, whether living or dead, is made of protons, neutrons, and electrons, can be broken down to protons, neutrons, and electrons. We are all this table, and me, we're made of the same thing. So can you only imagine how interconnected our emotions really are? Hmm. Beautiful. And how does this impact that notion you brought up a minute ago, Wendy, of tikkun olam? Carolyn, please. Well, <clears throat> if we're fixing the world, we're really fixing ourselves because it's all, all the same. Very nice. We're fi if we're fixing the world, we're fixing ourselves. And in this month of exploration, spiritual exploration, in these um, 10 days of awe, um, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the 10 days in between, in which we look inwards and do our best to figure out how we can become better as people. We're not only fixing ourselves according to this, but we're fixing the entire world. Fixing ourselves is a way of fixing the entire world or affecting the entire world because we're all interconnected, but also perhaps a way of influencing positively, affecting, repairing God. If God is what interconnects and interweaves and unites each one of us, then we actually have the power this time of year not only to repair ourselves, or to repair the world, but also to help repair the brokenness, the sadness, the, the lack of wholeness of God. So um, I want to share a few ways that we might uh, undertake that tikkun, undertake that reparation. And I'm happy to share this text uh, with you. Uh, just shoot me an email. Happy to share with you. But uh, it, this actually comes from an article in the New York Times that published the entire letter uh, that he wrote to the rabbi, um, that Einstein wrote to the rabbi in the book um, by Rabbi Naomi Levy. She doesn't have the whole letter. but um, I can't recommend the book enough. So we're going to read a few readings from Rabbi Levy, Naomi Levy, in, in the book. So what does she say um, on this topic? Could somebody 
I'll, I'll scroll down because I don't think, think we can fit it all. Let's try, the text is a little bigger. I'm gonna try to sh uh, start the show, slideshow. Can you still see that or did it get small? Yeah, that's good, that's good. Oh. I'll read it, I'll read it. Hey, thank you, Elaine. Um, <clears throat> Einstein and the rabbi, invisible threads of connection run through us and through the entire universe. The soul's consciousness links us to the blade of grass beneath our feet and to the majesty of the high peaks and to the souls of the living and the dead. The collective soul of generations long gone echoes through us and reverberates in the rhymes, rhythms of our daily lives. The soul perceives that those we have loved and lost are never far from us. Life may end, but the light of their presence continues to shine on us from the place of eternity. Thank you. So what is Rabbi Levy saying here? It's, it's very similar to what Wendy was saying I, earlier about everything being connected and she wasn't that different from the chair. I think that kind of echoes the, the, same, the same idea. Totally. So she's saying she's building on what Einstein said, which is hard to believe uh, that anybody can build on what Einstein said, but she's building on what Einstein said that we're all interconnected. The invisible threads of connection run through us and through the entire universe. But she adds another element. Um, to me, a very Jewish element to this notion of interconnection. What, what is that? Well, the, the soul. It's a soul, the eternity of the soul. That's right. The eternity the of the soul. Living in the dead. Yes. Um, you know, can you, this is a really wonderful discussion, but I'm just going to pause for one sec as I let my dog in because she's just, uh, I can't concentrate with all the scratching. So I'll be right back. She can join the rest of us. I, I think Zooms, Zooms are much more fun when people's pets are in, in the frame anyway. Mm -hmm. She's a cute. Oh, there's a puppy there. Terry has her pup. Oh, yeah. Terry. Terry is, is such a cute a little baby. Interspecial Zoom meeting. <laughs> Koala, Inter right? Interspecious species. There we go. Interspecies oh. Zoom meeting. See? So, no wonder uh, they were scratching so much. This is actually not my dog. My parents' dog, Teddy. My parents are out of town. And so we're watching Teddy. And he is uh, very eager to learn a little Torah. Yes. Uh, put, put him on the camera. We oh, there he oh, is. There he is. Yeah. There he is. You see? You see Teddy? Uh, oh, don't. Yeah. Oh, Terry, your dog is happy uh, to learn Torah, too. Yes. So, um, but, you know, I mean, if we take Einstein seriously or the Kabbalah seriously, uh, we are all interconnected. We are all, right. all part of the same spirit of the universe. Yes, so, he agrees. He's going to go nap again now. Okay. Yeah, same for you, Teddy. <laughs> so in addition to this eternal soul, um, which, which Rabbi Levy brings in, that is that links each one of us to the grass beneath our feet, um, what I'm really struck by is her notion of the soul being connected to both everyone that's living and also those who've come before. Mm -hmm. To me, um, the high holidays are one of the times in the year that I feel most connected to the people who came before, to my ancestors, 
the people in my life who've passed away. Um, in many ways, and I'd like to ask you, um, in what ways do you, are you reminded or feel connected to the people whose shoulders we stand upon um, when we when we gather together for the high holidays? Well, there's always Yisker. I mean, we always uh, those of us who have people that we've lost in our. Uh, immediate family, you know, we always have Yisker. And um, it's a very, uh, well, it's cathartic. It, it, it's kind of a difficult hour, but it's, it's cathartic. Thank you, Wendy. Would anyone else like to share? I don't know if I'm putting this well or not. But when you sit down in the synagogue, when you're my age, which is not a very young one, and you sit there and you sit down in the synagogue, you're sitting down each time with a lot of people that are no longer there to sit with, but yet they are there. They're always there with you. Very nice. I, I think um, I, you're reminding me of a synagogue I went to when I was in um, Lithuania about uh, in a small, a small shtetl, about an hour outside of Vilna, of Vilnius today. And um, it was a community in which about two thirds of the residents um, before the Holocaust were Jews, um, all but uh, three, I think, uh, were murdered in the war. And um, you walk into this synagogue, which has a caretaker um, who is not Jewish. His, his, close, uh, his closest friends were Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. um, and he, to this day, takes care of the synagogue and, and keeps the key um, and whatnot. And um, I went into synagogue with some of my rabbinic classmates and sitting in this place where for generation after generation, um, Jews came together and prayed, um, always facing east towards Jerusalem. And now today, uh, what a miracle that um, for, for 2,000 years, they prayed every day to get back. And now we can go there whenever we want. When I lived there, I lived, I lived a 20-minute walk from the Western Wall. Um, but I got this very deep sense of connection to the generations who came before and the fact that even though they died, even though their life was cut short, um, Am Yisrael Chai, that the Jewish people live. And um, every year when we come together on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we um, follow in the footsteps of the people who have been doing this, our, our literal ancestors or our spiritual ancestors who've been doing this um, same ritual coming together and looking inside themselves the same way that we are doing today. Um, and in this holiday, Yizker, as you said, Wendy, um, but more than any other, as the most observed Jewish holiday over the course of time, today actually in America, Passover, Passover Seder is the most observed Jewish holiday. Um, but uh, it, it, to me, as, and sitting in temple, 
where so many of us in this city have roots going back many generations. Um, it, it is a very special place to, to come together and pray. Um, Linda, I see that you are, are raising your hand. Without it even being something formal like a ritual, I think many of us always stay connected because we stop and think, now what would daddy think about that? How did mama handle that particular situation? I want to I want to do the way I was raised, and I I think we just do. It's not it's not a formalized thing, but we're we're, we're still connecting with those that have had an influence on us throughout our lives, and that becomes you know an integral part of most everything we do. Actually, hmm. that's a really beautiful idea, Linda, and especially when we tie it to teshuva. When we think about the person that we want to be or want to become or want to return to. This notion of returning to the person maybe we once were, the person that our parents tried to shape us into. Um, when we think about the person we want to be, like you said, Linda, a lot of who we might want to be or who we might, uh, in some cases, unfortunately, who we might not want to be, who we might not want to be like, um, so much of that is guided by our parents. Um, I want to pick up on one line from Rabbi Levy where she says, um, the collective soul of generations long gone echoes through us and reverberates in the rhythms of our daily lives. So I'd like to think she, what she's saying is, even though people have passed away, their soul, part of our collective soul, but also their particular souls live on through the way that we act and interact in the world. So as we think about the people that we want to become, we are actually also bringing their souls into the world and, and um, manifesting their continuity through our intention, through our kavanah, um, but also through our action. So connecting to the past and thinking about how the past might influence who we want to be is one aspect of teshuva, one aspect of how we recreate ourselves. But I'd like to share another aspect, another notion of how we might do that. So let's, um, yeah, let's, let's read this. To... Go for it, Russell. And I, I, just, I just wanted to say this. Because mention was made of the the fact that our parents always remain with us, and I have to pass along to you what I thought was the most wonderful compliment that I ever received from anyone. There was an, a member of the congregation for years. Some of you may remember him by the name of Joe Ashendorf. Joe was a friend of my father's who was also named Joe. And he happened not too many years ago, just a, a year or two before he passed away, to attend a service when I happened to be the Torah chanter for the day. And when I got through, he walked up to me and, and he said, Joe would be proud of you. And that was the statement he made 
And I thought that was the most wonderful compliment that I ever had. Someone telling me my father would be proud of me. Very nice, Russell. Very nice. And I, I think you're, uh, who said this a moment ago, Linda, that so much of our lives, and I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm sure we have one or some kind of psychological uh, person on this call, uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, therapist, but that uh, we do spend so much of our lives trying to um, live up to the expectations of our parents. We, uh, we do things that we want them to be proud of, uh, seeking their affection or their approval uh, even long after they're gone. All the way to the point of becoming a rabbi, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. That's true. I, I, I can't say I have any rallies in my family, uh, at least for a few generations. Although my um, a relative of mine did some genealogy, which uh, determined that I'm actually a descendant of Rashi, which uh, is amazing. Uh, Rashi, the preeminent uh, Jewish scholar in uh, 12th or 13th century France, um, except for the fact that pretty much all French Jews, a very large percentage of French Jews are also descendants of Rashi in some form or another, uh, but I'll, I'll take it. So um, let's go to another way of helping us along this road of returning, of turning um, into Shuva. Um, who can read this one for us? Uh, I can read this one. And then the next one is longer. So the truth is, the soul doesn't deal in satisfaction or bliss. It deals in open eyes and discomfort. The soul wants you to be uncomfortable enough to strive for more, to grow and to learn and to see what needs fixing in this beautiful and broken world. What's, what's Jewish about this? Yeah, Carolyn. Deed and not creed. So say more about that. Just, um, it's very Jewish that you must do something. You can't just, you can't just believe and be happy. Mm. You're expected to do something, if nothing else, but to grow and learn and help but not to just sit back and believe. Very nice, very nice. We have to strive for more, to grow, to learn, and to see what's fixing in this beautiful and broken world. Yeah. And there's your tikkun olam right there. Yeah. Yeah. Terry, go ahead. I I have found, since I am, uh, I don't have parents that would have uh, given me the traditions, and, uh, uh, but, um, I have found Judaism to be very clear-eyed about the conditions of our lives. And when things are not pretty, it doesn't try to, uh, to gloss over anything. It actually looks at things that are uncomfortable, for instance, death and, and mourning, and actually deals with it head on. And that's, I think that's a very Jewish thing. And that's what I see in here is that the soul wants you to be uncomfortable to strive for more. And we don't, 
Judaism does not try to pretty up anything except in trying to help you fix the problem. Hmm. Very nice. Uh, Miriam Alana, I see you. Yes. Uh, what I hear from this, what I see from this, is it's the journey, it's not a destination. You never get to the finish line. So that's yeah, my, my whole thing about this is um, you're always striving for more and more. So if we um, get satisfied, uh, if, if we stop with the satisfaction for who we are, um, for uh, the person that we've become, for the things that we've achieved, um, well, you put it really nicely, Miriam Milano. What'd you say? That we're always moving forward, moving forward. It, it's not a destination; it's the journey. Uh, right, not the destination; it's the journey. And that there's always, no matter um, if you are the holiest, most pious, most kind person, there's always more that you can do to achieve a higher level of of goodness of um, of kindness, of spiritual connection as well. Um, this text reminded me, there's a reading, let's see if I can find it quickly, in the um, Shabbat evening Amidah that we read sometimes. Um, if you have your seal next to you, it is on the bottom of page 55. Um, and it is by... Never remember who wrote it. You know, all, all of the wonderful readings in our Sidor, um, you can find who wrote it on like the back few pages. There's a listing of who wrote it. This one is Rabbi, um, oh, Mitch, Mitchell Salem Fisher, who has an interesting bio, but we're not going to get into it tonight. Um, but here's what he writes. He writes, disturb us, Adonai, ruffle us from our complacency make us dissatisfied, dissatisfied with the peace of ignorance, the quietude which arises from a shunning of the horror, the defeat, the bitterness and the poverty, physical and spiritual of humans. Shock us, Adonai, deny to us the false Shabbat which gives us the delusions of satisfaction amid a world of war and hatred. Um, he goes on, make us know that the border of the sanctuary is not the border of living. And the walls of your temples are not shelters from the winds of truth, justice, and reality. Um, he it continues a little bit, and you might re, re, uh, remember it because I like to read it a lot when, when I'm leading services. But um, to me, it's so much uh, the design of our sanctuary that it's just half the circle. And we have to go out into the world and complete the circle. And if we get complacent um, that all God wants us to do is sit in our beautiful sanctuary and listen to Happy or Emily um, or any of our amazing musicians sing, um, if we get complacent and think that's what all that God wants us to do, we're totally missing the point um, that there's so much more to do than just being comfortable with who we are um, and what we have in the world. And um, I think that's also one of the messages of these high holidays, um, that no matter who we are and how proud of we are uh, of ourselves or comfortable we've gotten in our lives, 
materially, um, emotionally, that there's always more that we can do to strive for. So I think we have time for one or maybe two more ideas. Um, let's skip this one and maybe we'll come back to it. <coughs> so this one um, is linked to the Kol Nidre, uh, which who knows what the Kol Nidre, before we read it, what Kol Nidre, which is the most iconic uh, prayer of the High Holidays, probably. Um, Unatana Tokef maybe being a close second or maybe the first. Um, Unatana Tokef is the one who by fire, who by water. Um, and who, of course, um, Leonard Cohen probably made more famous than, uh, than the Moxor. But uh, both of these very, very important texts for this holiday. What's Kol Nidre about? When are you saying something? If you were, you're on mute. It's about not living up to expectations. Very nice. Very nice. Um, I want to touch on that, but does anybody want to add anything else? Russell, sure, go ahead. Uh, wasn't it to protect us from being foolish because it was a uh, it was a protection against foolish vows exactly so neder is a vow nidre or nedarim are vows plural and um lynn can you repeat what you said i love how you put it about not living up to expectations we make these vows, we make these promises, some we fulfill, others we fail miserably. And in the misery, there is teshuva. Very nice. Very nice. So we make vows throughout the year, and, and to early Jews and to the early rabbis, a vow was uh, more important, was, was more binding than signing a contract. Um, in the ancient world, your word, your, your oral word, um, was your bond. And um, a vow was, was a, um, an oath that you took not only to another human being, but also to God, to, to extra cement the commitment that you're making. And um, sometimes, as both you, Lynn, and Russell said, we, we might think in, in one situation, we uh, are going to live up to, to our vows. Um, the, the, the story of Yiftach or, or Jephthah's uh, daughter in the Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible, I think it's in the book of Judges, uh, is a, yeah. uh, Terry, did you say something? Oh no, I was just saying, oh yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the story, right. yes. Yes, it's, a, it's quite a terrible story. Um, he, correct me if I'm misremembering, uh, Terry, but he's coming back. Uh, he, he's in uh, battle, and he says, um, "Well, Terry, you can probably tell it better than I can. Can anybody tell it better than I can?" Oh, he says he makes a vow to God that, that he will sacrifice the first thing he sees uh, if, if he can win this battle. And as he's coming home, the first thing he sees, his daughter runs out to greet him, and um, the rabbis say that. Uh, he never, he didn't fulfill the vow. 
but the tour, the Je- book of Judges says differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so uh, the some rabbinic commentators say this actually, even in the Tanakh, even in the Bible, um, shows that there are limits to what we should uh, ascribe to our vows. That even if we make a vow, there's some reasons. Uh, some vows are so unattainable that we shouldn't feel forced to keep them. Um, and co- essentially saying Jephthah Yiftach was wrong. Um, and of course, uh, vowing to sacrifice your daughter to God uh, is uh, about as antithetical in Judaism as we can to Judaism as we can think of. But to bring it uh, to less gruesome and grotesque, uh, every year on Colme, when we sing Colmidre, we are essentially um, asking God to annul all of the vows that we made to God um, throughout the year. Like if if we said, um, God, if uh, if the Tigers beat uh, Ole Miss, then uh, I promise I'll go to Temple every Shabbat for the rest of the year. And then sometimes you fell short. Um, that would be a vow we would ask God to annul in Kol Midre. And um, it, it is maybe not because of the meaning of Kol Midre that it is such an um, emotional tie for each of us, but for, for the music, um, the, the message of Kol Midre is important, um, that we make mistakes, that we screw up, and that we should get a second chance. But also, of course, the haunting tune of Kol Midre that we all now know and, and are either love or uh, makes us feel connected to our childhood or to our parents or, or whatever it does for, for you. Um, I think that is as much as the message of Kol Midre is, is the haunting tune that, that makes us uh, feel so connected to it. But getting back to the message for a moment, Sorry, here I am rambling on about it. But getting back to Rabbi Levy, what does she say um, about our path in life and how it relates to Colmidre? Lynn, would you mind reading? We all start life off with an open, curious, loving heart, and then inevitably we get hurt. Life can be cruel. Someone lets you down. Someone shames you, betrays you. Someone breaks your heart. So we start making vows. I'll never get fooled like that again. I'll never talk to him again. I'll never forgive her for what she did to me. These vows we make, we take them to heart. But the heart of stone isn't just armor that protects us from incoming attacks. It also makes us less receptive to incoming love and surprise and blessings. And that's why I believe Jews recite the Kol Nidre prayer each year. They come together to annul those vows we made that have caused our hearts to constrict. Thank you very much, Lynn. So she takes this in a slightly different direction. She's not talking about vows that we make um, to God to be better people. Um, What's the kind of vow that she's saying that we too often make in our lives? Maybe, and probably most often, subconsciously. Making some kind of a deal, I think, is what 
I'll do this if you'll do that for me. Like a tit for tat. Yes. Getting even. Getting even with someone else. Like vowing to not love. Oh. Vowing to not love. What what might in her in her um perspective cause us to to do that, to vow to not love? Getting hurt. Getting hurt. We're not gonna do that again. Yeah. Self-protection. Exactly. She says, um, I love this line. These vows we make, we take them to heart, but the heart of stone, the heart of stone that comes from saying, we're not going to open ourselves up. We're not going to, um, yeah, open ourselves up to love again, um, isn't just armor that protects us from incoming attacks. What's the debt? Sometimes that kind of armor is necessary. And for a time, of course, it is. Um, and yet, what does she say is the downside of that? We uh, a heart of stone can't receive anything either. Can't receive love or surprise or blessing. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think each one of us, whether we've experienced pure personal loss, um, whether uh, in this world that we live in, in which we're inundated with terrible news. Every day, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful world out there, and more human beings live uh, without famine and war and um, disease than at any time in the history of humanity as a percentage of the population. And yet, you look at um, Ukraine, you look at what's the droughts in China, you look at, I mean, the water problems in Jackson, Mississippi. You look at this poor um, teacher here in Memphis, Liza. Um, who was just kidnapped and murdered in our own city a few miles away. Um, and in order to go on in life, in order to keep living, so often we have to do as Pharaoh did when his own people were suffering and harden our hearts. If, if we were open and receptive and truly felt the gravity of everything that happens in the world, how could we live? How could we move on? We, by our very um, nature, have to shut some things out. The suffering of others, the suffering of ourselves out. And yet, I love her idea that part of this notion of teshuva, of the high holidays, of returning to the person that we might want to become, is annulling those vows that harden our hearts. Part of the job of the high holidays of Teshuva is becoming more sensitive to the world around us, becoming more sensitive to ourselves, looking inside for ways that maybe we hardened our own heart. We didn't even notice. But also, Rabbi, yeah, go ahead. Wendy. And Rabbi, I was going to say at the same time that we do have to harden our hearts to so many things in order to just get through life. We also have to be open to great compassion. It's just so important in life, this, this, this key, this compassion. I mean, Judaism and also Buddhism, they both just speak about it all the time. It's 
the key, the key. The Dalai Lama, I mean, he might as well be Jewish. It's amazing. <laughs> I've never heard that one before, but I would recommend uh, the, the Jew in the Lotus, uh, the book. Oh, yes, I have read that book. Yes, yes, yes. Which is the account of uh, the Dalai Lama meeting a delegation of, of rabbis and Jews, um, in large part trying to figure out how uh, a diaspora stayed connected uh, for so many generations, um, given that the uh, majority of Buddhists um, and Tibetan Buddhists now live outside of Tibet. Rabbi, thank you for sharing this. It's, uh, this is really powerful. Well, thank you. Well, I want to, um, we have three minutes left, and I just want to open it up for any thoughts, uh, any reflections that have come out of our discussion tonight. Yeah, Lynn. In the opening, in discussing the unity, I was kind of surprised that no one came out with the basic tenet, Adonai Akkad, which the oneness throughout all. Just kind of surprised that no one brought it out. Yeah, very nice. Oh, go ahead, Terry. We missed it. That was, it seemed rather obvious now that he mentioned it, but we missed, we missed that. So if you play that out with the oneness, Adonai Echad, then we are one with God. Am I right? I mean, does that, would that play out based on what the opening said? Lynn? Not with, but in. Okay. There you go. There you go. I think it is such a, a spiritual disservice that we do to our kids when we teach them the Shema, which they learn at, it's probably the first prayer that Jewish kids learn. Um, it's not a prayer, I guess. It's, it is a, tech, a quote from the Torah. But um, it is the most well-known um, prayer in our, in our liturgy. And um, another time, maybe in my um, Rosh Hashanah sermon, we'll see if it makes it in there. Um, there's a really moving story about um, some children uh, hearing the Shema for the first time um, in a long time that may have lost their Jewish roots, but that's a story for another day. Uh, but when we teach our kids the Shema and all we say about it is the literal translation that there's one God. Because, yes, that is what the Shema is saying. But for centuries and centuries and millennia after the Torah was handed down with that word, it, it has been interpreted not just that God, that there's one God, that God is one, but that we're all one, that we're all united in God, and that God is what connects and interconnects each one of us. So what a profound teaching that we just leave to the side, and maybe if our kids decide to become Jewish mystics later in life, they, uh, they realize that. But how much more spiritually connected would we be as a people if that was the earliest lesson that we taught, that we are all one, that we're all interconnected? So thank you all very much for joining. And uh, my, my prayer 
my my hope for each one of us is that um, as we hear the call of the shofar each morning, um, if you if you uh, don't go to a regular minion where the shofar is blown um, and you have your own shofar, what a great way to start uh, the morning. Even before your morning coffee, you can wake yourself up uh, with a tekiah gedola. Um, but I hope that that piercing sound Neighbors will be calling the fire department. <laughs> Rabbi, my uh, husband, as a special surprise, bought me a beautiful shofar. Uh, I've, never, I've never had one before in my life. I now own my own shofar. It came the other day. And uh, as much as I try, I can't get my embouchure. I mean, I can't oh, make it. You got a note. Uh, he says, I got a note. I, I don't well, know how I'm going to make it. Wendy, Wendy, you had, I saw in the uh, plans for Yom Kippur whether we're going where we're going back to having a uh, general shofar blowing at the end of the okay. and you should go you should come up when uh and blow yours when we do that i can't make a sound out of it yet i don't know if yeah, i'm going to okay. be able to master this i'll come over and teach you i'll give you lessons well wendy if you come up and i invite all of you to come up uh, well, uh, this is great <laughs> thank you Des. and i you're all invited but wendy if you come up and even if you're not an expert yet Everybody will think you're the loudest one in the room because we'll all be, uh, yeah, be you know, together. <laughs> exactly. So thanks, everybody. Um, I, I just wanted to end with, with one line, with one line that's um, from, from Einstein, that if we can do anything, if the shofar can, can break us out of anything this Elul and these high holidays, that it be the spiritual and optical delusion of our consciousness that we're separate from other beings, from everything else. And in fact, we are all one. That's so right. A, a and happy and healthy new year. Shana Tova. Tova. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Thank you.